Our God, we would seek to never engage in this sacred task of sermon delivery or sermon listening without asking Your Spirit to guide and to direct, to capture the focus of our attention, to ask that You would give this speaker clarity of communication and clarity of thought and and Your people clarity as we listen to the voice of God as it is delivered. We thank You for inscripturating Your truth, for Your Spirit using men of God and moving them along so that what they wrote were the very words of God. Thank You for the way You have faithfully preserved and transmitted Your Scriptures for us today. Ask that You would help us to be uh, attentive to that truth, that You would convict us and encourage us towards righteousness. We'll ask this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. October 31st, 1517 was a pivotal date in church history, one on which the course of human events in Western civilization and the church dramatically turned. Martin Luther, an obscure Bible professor at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, nailed 95 theses to the front door of the castle church at Wittenberg. In these, he registered his protest against the abuses of the sale of indulgences by the papacy. Noted historian Philip Schaff stated that next to the beginning of Christianity, the Protestant Reformation was, quote, the greatest event in history, unquote. And as the leading force of the Reformation, Luther attempted to bring the church back to the singular authority of Scripture. He wrote books, he wrote tracts, he wrote pamphlets, letters, along with class lectures and public debates and heated disputes in churches and universities. I'll be the first to add, I don't go along with some of uh, the crude speech and some of the uh, Lutheran issues that, uh, that Dr. Luther had, but I praise God for raising up certain reformers to recapture the doctrine of sola scriptura, that we submit to nothing else but the authority of Scripture. Because this was an age when the Pope and church councils and religious traditions reigned. Rome regarded the papacy as sitting over Scripture, also elevating oral tradition and church creeds and extra-biblical writings and the teachings of the church fathers. But for Luther, Scripture alone must govern the church. Human knowledge is worthless in preaching, therefore preaching must be intensely biblical. And when he said intensely biblical, it's tied to the Scriptures. We extract from the text what God means by what He said. No man, not even Pope, could rival the absolute authority of the Bible. So when summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to appear before the imperial diet to recant his theses, to recant his statement on April 18, 1521, he replied with what has now become his famous words, the famous words of Luther. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. Since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Later on, Luther was asked to explain the, the sweeping success of the Reformation. 
And he responded with unwavering confidence in God's Word. To quote him just once more, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it, I did nothing. The Word did everything. The Protestant movement was founded on Scripture alone and therefore it could not be stopped, could not be blocked. Last week, chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 15 of Titus was fit into the exposition of the ber- verses preceded and I just could not move on this week to chapter 3. I, I tried it and I thought it behooves us as the church to contemplate just for a few moments that God has allowed us here to gather to think about biblical authority. The inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God. Titus 2.15 is one of the clearest and most succinct verses of all of inspired Scripture that addresses the issue of authority. Why would he go to Crete under apostolic command to fix what was lacking or to put it in the exact words that Paul used back in Titus 1.5, to set in order what remains? What gave him authority to do that? To demand that every church on the island of Crete conform. What gave the apostles Authority to speak for God to His church. What gives preachers of the Bible today authority to address His church? So that when we talk about the issues of life, whether they be current issues in the Supreme Court on marriage or gender issues or women's role in the church that we dealt with a few weeks ago, one of those hot potatoes... That we can't dismiss what Scripture has to say. We can't dismiss women's role or submission or, or slaves or disobedience to authorities just because you don't like the person in charge that's given the lesson. There's dozens of other instructions given in the pastoral epistles, let alone the entire New Testament that we trod through week after week. So would you follow along as I read for us From Titus chapter 2, the last verse, where Paul reiterates what he began back in verse 1 of the chapter. He said, these things, speaking of verses 2 through 10, all these commands to the different groups in the church, he said, these things speak, Titus, exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here in these short, succinct words, we've got the biblical underpinnings on authority. Let's examine them this morning. Fleshed out in a series of three questions. What are the, for one question we ought to ask right away is, what are the sources of authority? Because there's a lot of things people postulate that gives authority. We ought to ask a second important question. What are the abuses? Because there sure are a lot of abuses inside and outside the church when it comes to the issue of authority. Lots of abuses. And third and finally, how is it exercised? If we're going to set aside every man-made contrivance of authority and instead replace it with the Word of God, how do we do that? So the first question, what are the sources of authority? There are a lot of them we find in Scripture. We find scribes and traditions and interpretations, so many abuses and false kinds, especially when it comes to dictators, and uh, we just want to look at a a few of these. Uh, One source of authority that I would submit to you that people think that authority is vested in is personal. So if you wanted to jot down letter A, as we're trying to answer the question, what are the sources? 
Some would submit, how about personal authority? Making a command in Jesus' name. These people who have an overinflated view of God's anointed, touch not God's anointed, because uh, I said it. Uh, we, must, we must recognize that man only speaks authoritatively when, God's, when they speak God's truth. You know, as we engage with people inside the church and outside the church and society, so often, if, suppose there's an, you're, you're writing an essay in school or you're sitting down in adult Sunday school across the hall and you are going down through your, your, your list of why you believe something to be true. Say it's one of the hot potatoes we've de- dealt with, like, uh, you know, women's role in the church or something. And you're give, you give four arguments in your lesson or your essay on what the Bible teaches for women's role in the church. And then towards the end of the argument, you say, I know that the Bible teaches this, 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 and this. But I believe, and that's right where you get into error, is it not? When you've just set aside, you've given the scriptural argument, and then you say, but I believe there is other sources of authority where you're relying on possibly personal authority. Somebody might have tremendous insight. Maybe they've got a lot of worldly smarts, an unusual measure of common sense. People with an inherent sense of thinking that there is personal authority. There's a lot of that in the religious context, is there not? People that think that they have power to heal and power to banish demons and to rebuke Satan in Jesus' name. Turn, turn back with me. For, uh, this is probably one of my, one of my most favorite because it, it ends up being a comical scene. Turn back to Acts 19 for just a moment as we think about those who think that they have personal authority that are not under a divine message, uh, mandate from God. Paul's ministering in Ephesus here, and Dr. Luke, who pens the narrative here of the book of Acts, conveys what life was like here in Ephesus. We're told in verse number 11 of Acts 19 that God was doing some great, great things in ministry. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that, notice, we would doubt this. Because of what goes on in many circles of evangelicalism today, we'd say, I don't believe it, right? Unless it was in Scripture. And and some of these events, you know, handkerchiefs, aprons were carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Wow! Wow! That's, that that dazzled the crowds. Verse 13. Also, some of the Jew, Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They didn't even have uh, uh, their own religious hocus-pocus to put over it. They want to adjure you by the one that Paul proclaims, since he's doing all this great stuff. Verse 14, so we're told that the seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirits answered. Here's their response to them thinking that they had personal authority. They said to them, well, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul. Who are you? How would you like to go off half-cocked saying, I've got power, I've got authority, and you know, you're trying to cast out devils and the devils turn on you, say, I, I, I know Jesus, I know, I know His apostle Paul, but who are you? Who are you? And you've you got to chuckle. I mean, this is divine humor that's recorded for us in, in, in Luke's narrative. And so they, they leapt on him. Leapt on, uh, subdued all of them. They we're told that they overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Not a very fun experience for them. The experience proved to be presumptuous, painful, and greatly embarrassing. I'd submit to you there's other sources that people think that they have authority to say or do things. Let her be. 
How about uh, ecclesiastical authority? And it's going to take us just a couple minutes to think through this one. This is a biggie. Uh, I used as an illustration this morning to the sermon to kind of ramp up our thoughts here of the Reformation and Luther. What were they reforming? They were reforming the church that was indoctrinated in the, the Roman Catholic Church that had claimed to be the only true church, often claiming authority over human government and even society. When we think about ecclesiastical or church authority, what comes into the discussion here is the magisterium. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands in talking with many of you. Many of you uh, could school me on Roman Catholicism because I did not grow up from within sight it, though I've studied it. And so I had to go back to uh, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation and some of their other sources to find out. You know, the magisterium is an authority that lays down what is the authentic teaching of the church. And that authority is vested uniquely in the Pope and bishops who are in communion with Him. That is on page 100 of Catechism of the Catholic Church. So what is suggested in the magisterium or that we get our authority from what has been passed down through the church is that sacred Scripture and tradition melded together, those two things, sacred Scripture and tradition, make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God which is entrusted to the church, unquote. So the problem isn't the bowing to the Word. It is that it is bowing to the Word at the expense of the tradition that's been added to it. So the church stands above Scripture rather than under Scripture. They claim for themselves they are the sole reliable interpreter of the Bible, the channel through, divine revela- through which uh, divine revelation has and continues to be given. In Catholic dogma, when the, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, literally from the chair, from the papal chair or his throne, he speaks with the divine authority. That is what is suggested. It presumes to grant its priests the authority even to forgive sin, and not just through prescribed confession, but also through last rites if you can't ask for confession. Such authority, personal or even ecclesiastical, is false and man-made. I would set before you a third option that people give for where we get authority, that is intellectualism. If you wanted to jot down that third word for your thought process logically going through this, intellectualism, the notion that your own ideas carry authority. I can tell you it is not, uh, it was not very fun the first time I got back an essay in seminary and where a professor was schooling me and saying, you know, I'm not really interested in your opinions. But that had a way of really sucking the life out of me in my postulating various ideas. And so that becomes a favorite phrase on students' essays as I give them back. I I let them know, uh, hopefully in grace and kindness, that nobody's interested in my opinion. Nobody's interested in your opinion. We have no authority in our opinion. Only when we speak the truth of the Word of God do we have authority, which we'll get to in a moment. But this idea of intellectualism being a source of authority, this was really brought to light during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment periods. Man solving his own problems and determining his own destiny apart from God or any other supernatural power. God's given wisdom. God gives much insight. Praise God for... uh, the, the insight he's given scientists and medical professionals. Yeah? If you've got a headache, you're awful glad for the Imitrex shot to take it away most of the time. Intellectualism was never meant to operate independent from God or without Him being the source of the glory being given. 
Our intellect was drastically affected by the fall. This is the noetic effects of the fall. We can't even think straight. You can't think yourself out of a paper bag if you look at it biblically. We, we, everything is skewed through sin. This is the inescapable reality. That's what, kind of, somewhat what Paul addresses in Romans 1. You know, we look at creation. We experience God's glory in creation. And because of creation that is constantly narrating the glory of God, nobody can say there is no God. But in Paul's argument in Romans 1, we're told that man wants to suppress that truth of God in unrighteousness, to hold it down, to push it, to hold it at bay, and to exchange the truth for a lie. That's what man wants to do. So this is the inescapable reality. Man suppresses it. Man's way is, uh, we, we read in the Scripture that man's way is right in his own eyes. I think I'm right, now you tell me how right I am, is the way our dialogue tends to go, even if we don't admit it. Our foolish hearts, we're told there in Romans 1.21, are darkened. The best human ideas still can't save a human soul. They cannot rescue man from sin or spiritual death. They cannot deal with man's worst enemy. And so in the guise of intellectualism, this fourth skewed view of authority, you've got higher critics. Religious higher critics or liberal theologians and biblical scholars who think that they have authority over the Bible to determine, for instance, if these are really the words of Jesus in the gospel accounts or not. And we'll put together colored, colored dice and throw them to find out, okay, well, there's a majority here. These are probably mostly what Jesus had to say, and these ones we'll excuse. Or... or subduing the supernatural of the miraculous in Scripture. Was Jonah really eaten by a great fish? Yes! You know, you got the higher critics, the liberal theologians, biblical scholars thinking they have authority over the Bible. Not only to determine what really were the words of Jesus, or whether the human author that the church has always accepted, whether it be Isaiah or Paul, or whoever the human instrument was that God used, whether they really wrote what they wrote. And so they set aside the authority of Scripture for their own intellect. Under this third supposed realm of authority, we even have pastors. Pastors who are more impressed, uh, preachers who are more impressed with their rhetoric and what they want to say, and what they want to say takes so long they don't have time to tell you what God had to say and wrote it down so we don't get it wrong. Aren't we reminded by the Apostle Paul back in his first epistle to the Corinthians? How did he come? Did he come with great intellect and, and rhetoric and flowery speech? 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he said, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What did he bring? He brought, he brought to them a crucified Savior. And he promoted a message through preaching. Here's a fourth flawed source of authority. If you wanted to write down experiential or experience. I know this is right. I know this is true because I feel it is. And that becomes reality for you. You know, intuition or sixth sense isn't knowing. Feeling and emotion cannot discern truth. Experience is promoted by so many above careful biblical study and interpretation. You know, in this uh, experience model, we could put uh, many preachers in here too, couldn't we? 
Uh, you know, the, the challenge for preachers to keep his own intuition and experience out of the text and to keep him out of the sermon so that the voice of God alone is heard. J.I. Packer offered some helpful insight uh, I was thinking of this week in regards to the self-projection, reading experience and just going on and on at the mouth of self-projection. He said, it undermines and erodes authority. If by his words and manner the preacher focuses attention on himself, thus modeling some mode of self-absorption or self-satisfaction rather than humble response to the word that he proclaims, he precludes all possibility of his channeling any sense of divine authority. What he does not feel himself, he cannot mediate to others. He said, James Denny said somewhere that if you cannot convey the impression both that you are a great preacher and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior, he might have added, or that the Lord is a great God. God projection, he coined his own word here, God projection and Christ projection rather than self-projection is the way to communicate and engender in one's hearers a sense of divine authority in one's preaching. He said self-reliance in the act of preaching is a further hindrance to true authority in preaching. Just as self-projection is, it too has the effect of inducing the hearers to attend to the messenger rather than the message. In other words, says Packer, to man rather than to God, and authentic authority is eliminated when that happens, unquote. Who are we trying to impress people with? The messenger or his message? Many people don't want to hear authoritative and demanding preaching about the God of the Bible. You go to many churches today and you launch off into a study like what we have been doing here at Newtown for a few years now, going through the Gospel of Matthew. And they find out that the Jesus of the Bible is a different Jesus than what they have been serving and worshiping. They don't want the Jesus of the Bible. He's too demanding. They'd rather settle for a Jesus of their own making. That's why Paul, in uh, one of the other pastoral epistles, would warn Timothy about how, how difficult ministry would be. In 2 Timothy 4.3, when, when he warned Timothy that in his day, in your day, Timothy, as in our day, 2015, too many preachers are going to be pandering to ear ticklers, to self-centered hearers. You look at most popular preaching, listen to it, it's on any station, broad-minded, anecdotal, entertaining, ego-building, and above all, never confrontational or dogmatic. Well, I don't know if that's really what the text says. Well, if you don't know, then step away from the pulpit and let somebody stand up and say, thus saith the Lord who have studied it. Get out of the way, stop wasting God's people's time. You know, the... Uh, popular preaching is that which it, it offends no pride, it disturbs no conscience, and clear, it has a clear reflection of the humanistic spirit of our day and age. People pushing for tolerance and unity at any cost. Well, we don't want to step on any toes. So there are several perceived sources of authority. I gave you four false sources. Let's think about a second question as, as, as we think about authority here. Are there abuses? There's so, many, there's so many ways to illustrate the abuses of authority. Fallen man having no regard for God's law, God's will, God's holiness, God's sovereignty. But only a, the authoritative word of God that is heard, believed, and obeyed can actually rescue sinners from their rebellion. Let me illustrate how, how authority is abused, and we'll, we'll, we'll think of one societal illustration and one biblical. In regards to a societal example, there is a generation of parents who have failed to discipline children that's added to this anti-authority model, right? Kids aren't being schooled to respect authority. And it doesn't stay at home, it goes to church with them, it goes to school with them, and it goes to the workplace when they're older. There's not the model that 
Paul had already addressed to Titus of the older teaching the younger how to submit to authority and obedience and contrition and joy. Kids who fail to respect parents as a result of this anti-authority model. They live with a sense of superiority that somehow that the world owes them. They haven't learned to respect and obey parental authority. What about teachers' authority or police's authority or government's authority? Not to mention the authority God has in Himself over their life as His creation. Matter of fact, we'll, we'll start looking at that next week. Titus 3.1, you notice how, it's, how it opens up? Titus, make sure you remind them to be subject. There's that word, that submission thing again. Be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. You want to show that the gospel is the real message, that it transforms life from the heart out? Work out your salvation in submission and show a godless society what biblical submission, and they'll stand up and take notice. They'll recognize your good deeds and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's countercultural. How about a biblical illustration of how authority is abused? Can we promote before us in the Gospels the scribes and Pharisees for this illustration? The Jews of Jesus' day were used to religious leaders saying and not doing. They came with what they thought was authority. You do this, you do that, but they didn't do this or that. There was, that you'd notice much religious ostentation, but no real spiritual authority. It was like a circus. You want me to do this and you don't do that. Turn back with me to Matthew 7 as we allow this thought to percolate in our minds. Matthew 7, after listening to the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which takes up Matthew 5, 6, and 7, at the very end of chapter 7, the end of Jesus' sermon, Matthew 7, notice with me verses 28 and 29. After Jesus got done preaching, after He'd finished these things, Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was the complete antithesis of what they saw for religious authority in their day. Scribes had rigid religious views and standard based largely on traditions that had been handed down by noted rabbis. What gave gave you veracity and authority to your, your message? By what esteemed rabbi you would quote. And as that tradition would be handed down by noted rabbis. And those interpretations and traditions became the dogma and were given more honor than Scripture. Matter of fact, as you, go, as you fast forward ahead in his ministry a few chapters in, in Matthew's gospel, you come to chapter 15 with this whole debate over tradition. Set your eyes on the first half a dozen verses there, Matthew 15. Then some of the scribes and, excuse me, some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You notice what he put back in their lap? They were concerned about the tradition handed down by the elders and not the commandment of God. And Jesus is asking them, Where's the emphasis on the commandment of God over the tradition? Verse 4, For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And notice his pronouncement in the next verse. You hypocrites. 
And, the, and, he, and he cites from Isaiah the prophet, this people honors me with their lips, their hearts far from me. It takes us back to our scripture reading this morning, Zechariah 7, where the question was asked, should we continue in our national fast? And he says, fasting for who? You or me? You weren't fasting for me because it didn't come from your heart. It was empty ritual. So there's this debate over tradition. After Jesus cleanses the temple in Mark 11, 27 and 28, the question is asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Good question. At least you're thinking, what's the source of authority? Is it in the traditions handed down, the interpretations of the elders and the scribes? He hadn't been schooled by the scribal school or personally tutored by a leading rabbi. Jesus' authority didn't come from ecclesiastical title or scribal training or sacerdotal position. He just taught, and it was authoritative teaching. Where'd he get it? Was the, was the recurring question from his hearers. He assumed authority that they didn't think he had. Who was wrong, the Son of God or them? He records, uh, John records for us in his gospel In John 7, verses 16 and 17, jot it down for future meditation. Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. So, as we think about these principles of how Jesus conducted a ministry of authority, if any person seeks and obeys God the Father, he's going to recognize the divine authority of the Son. If you don't know the Son, you don't, don't, don't soothe your conscience in thinking that you're appeasing the Father. So after Jesus cleanses the temple and He curses the fig tree and enters the temple, the chief priests and the elders came to Him while teaching. Uh, uh, our family was reading this for devotions last night in Matthew 21 and verse 23 Here's that question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So he stumped and silenced them because they're not interested in the answer. So as we have tried thinking ever so briefly through Scripture about this subject of authority, this term is translated all throughout the New Testament as commandment. So to hold up the commands of God is to speak, is to minister in authority. To pass on the commandment of God, not opinion, not suggestion, and not even counsel, the commandments of God in the Word of God. So Jesus becomes for us in the Gospels the consummate model as one who commanded authority. So if you don't get to Jesus in your discussion and your dialogue and authority, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. If you don't get to interpretation and, and uh, exposition of God's truth, you're going to get to the wrong answer. You're going to have wrong sources of authority. You're going to have abuses of authority. All throughout the New Testament, authority is translated as this commandment. In Mark and Luke and John, we find Jesus ha- having authority over demons, disease, and demonstrating it in his teaching. But it wasn't from him, but from him who sent him. His message, in other words, to say it differently, his message came from God. So when Paul comes along and he gives inspired writings to the church in the pastoral epistles, here's how, what the church is, here's how she is co- to conduct herself. He's telling Timothy and he's telling Titus, You are to command my people. You are to give them my message. And you give them my message, you give them my authority. You come by my authority. I was recently listening to, I I don't usually get a chance to listen to a lot of sermons and chapel messages, but I I wanted to hear some of the graduates of the Master's Seminary. I think last week was Mother's Day, which would have been graduation. And in a recent chapel, uh, 
uh, noted expositor MacArthur mentioned, I, I said, I'm going to steal that as my own. He, he said, hard preaching makes soft people eventually, and soft preaching makes hard people. You preach, you thunder God's truth to God's people. God's people recognize the truth and they know that it's not the eloquence in the man because there is no eloquence. It's not from his brains or his brawn or his intellect or his rhetoric. It is the message of God and so we receive it as the people of God. So that final question, how is biblical authority exercised? It's simply exercised as we limit ourselves to the truth received from the Father, not truth and, not truth minus. Preachers are to speak only on the authority of divine Scripture. There is no ecclesiastical authority, no sacerdotal authority. It is simply derived authority, ministerial authority, to the extent that you and I have a message that is consistent with God's commandment. We bear God's authority. We don't have to wrestle somebody into it because somebody else is going to come along and wrestle them out of it, convince them out of it. So we simply take God's Word to God's people. So these, this, this one verse in Titus 2.15 where he commissions Titus to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. It's consistent with what what he's been teaching. We've been called in sacred trust to accurately handle, to interpret, and to proclaim Scripture. Yes, preachers of the Word of God are to to come to God's people with, with sympathy and compassion and humility, but with strong authority speaking the words of God. So Paul comes to Titus. And he says, make sure you speak it. That term laleo used uh, throughout the New Testament, Paul uses a little writing technique uh, that's called an inclusion. When's the last time we saw this command of speak? It was back in verse 1. And so it includes everything from verse 1 to verse 15. All these commands that are empowered by the gospel of grace that we looked at last week are to be spoken forth to God's people. So he ends the section with the same word, gathering up all that he said in, the, in, in, in that chapter. He uses this command and the next one of those who believe. They simply need to be stirred up. Uh, I already drew your eyes to chapter 3. What's he going to do? He's going to remind them. Oftentimes, God's people want to be reminded of truths that we've learned years ago and need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded of God's sovereign control in our lives. We need to be reminded to bear up under trials as Mike was taking us through in James 1 this morning. We need these reminders. So Titus, in your ministerial authority, speak God's truth. Stir them up. As a pastor, preach, announce, disclose God's truth. Make His truth clear that the hearers can understand. Careful and faithful Bible preaching is the need of the hour. If I could rely on that theologian Packer once more for an illustration. He says, says, preaching that does not display divine power both in its content and in its manner is not the substance, but only the shadow of the real thing. Yet the Bible is the real preacher, and the role of the man in the pulpit or the counseling conversation in the counseling room is simply to let the passages say their peace through him. For the preacher to reach the point where he no longer hinders or obstructs his text from speaking is harder work than is sometimes realized. However, there can be no disputing that this is the task of the hour. So whether you come to God's people as preacher or admonisher, counselor, you speak the oracles of God. And as you speak God's truth, it bears His authority. So Titus, don't forget to speak it. Second of all, exhort, pericoleo, encourage, ask them. He underscores the fact you are not, as a preacher of the Word of God, you're not above, above begging God's people incorporate this into their lives, begging them to honor Christ that He might bless their lives. It's used in, in a similar vein uh, as, as we would translate uh, 
uh, saying please. It's used that way throughout uh, some passages. Or maybe you could substitute the synonym urge. We urge God's people to put these instructions, these commands of God into practice. So its cognates are used as much the way we use the word please, urging God's people to submit under the instruction manual of the Word of God. It involves more than simply stating the truth. There is a beseeching tone, a pleading, a seeking by every means to persuade and encourage the hearers not just to understand the truth, but to believe it and heed it. And you'll notice that third command here. In rapid succession, he says, speak it, exhort it, and it seems like he's up in the intensity each time this third command, reprove with all authority. Bring to light, expose, rebuke, even punish. Notice how that intensity is growing. This negative tone is reserved for the rebellious. You know, with a lot of the saints, there's it, just a reminding, uh, uh, speaking the word, oh great, that's great. You know, sometimes there's that urging God's people to move on in their spiritual growth. But there are other rebellious at times. And this, so this negative tone, to correct those that must turn away from the wrongdoing. The old Bible commentator, William Barclay, writes, he says, the eyes of the sinner must be open to his sin. The mind of the misguided must be led to realize its mistake. The heart of the heedless must be stabbed broad awake. The Christian message is no opiate to send men to sleep. It's no comfortable assurance that everything will be all right. It is rather the blinding light which shows men themselves as they are and God as He is, unquote. Titus had no power to force obedience, but he sure had authority to demand it. Violations then would lie on the conscience of the offender and not on some reluctant shepherd that didn't speak God's truth into their lives. So yes, we do minister with divine authority. We are to speak God's truth, exhort God's people, and even reprove where we get out of line. Titus, don't let anybody disregard your message. Don't let anybody look down on you. This disregard is, is also uh, translated elsewhere as despised. No man despise your message. You be a good student. You do what I told Timothy to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed because he rightly handles the word of truth. Let no man think around you. In 1 Timothy 4.12, a different, more intensive word is used, a term of scorn where Timothy was told, um, don't let anybody look down on you. Here he's telling Titus, don't let anybody else think you. You are the enforcer. You know, in humility, beloved, we are simply servants of the Word. We've got one message, we've got one resource given by the Spirit of God. That's all the authority you need, the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word. Our job is simply to transmit the truth. That is, that is authority inscripturated. We're not to be novel. We're just channels. We're conveyors of the truth, passing on what we have learned you know, if I could go back to the parenting model for an illustration one more time as we conclude. Think about the process of parenting. You, you start off in the early years, you just command obedience. Do this, don't do that. Don't touch that, it's hot, you'll burn yourself. You know, it's just uh, prohibitive. You just command and don't do this, don't do that because you want their safety, uh, their, their safety. But eventually, as they grow and mature and learn, after teaching them how to conduct them, their life and making, them, making wise decisions for the glory of God and having reasoned with them, sometimes for hours on end, you kind of set them free. You release them. We raise kids to let them go. But we're reminded in Scripture, we're never raised to let go. 
the, the, maturity, uh, the maturing, the nurturing never stops. We never move behind, beyond the, I told you so, the commands of God. We're to remind God's people what they know. We're to instruct them on what they don't know. Titus, never grow slack in your duty. God's people at Newtown about never grow slack in your duty. Continue doing what we've done along, week after week, and in our daily interactions, constantly talking of the glorious life of sanctification as a thank offering for grace greater than our sin that we studied last week. Urging people whenever the occasion arises, whether it's a coffee break while roofing or, or uh, grilling at somebody's house on Sunday afternoon or in prayer meeting, speaking it, exhorting in it, and even reproving with it. All the time doing it with the authority of Christ whom we represent. That we cannot be ignored or shut up. Is the power of proclamation that when we speak the Word of God, God speaks. We must look past the, the man. You know, ministerial authority is, is just a derived authority when you minister the Word. It's not priestly. It's not magisterial or even apostolic. It's just pastoral. It's divine truths that, that are exposited to God's people. That confines ministry to be very narrow. We are ministers of the Word. Not Scripture plus the Book of Mormon. Not Scripture plus the Pearl of Great Price. Not Scripture plus our pro, pro, pragmatic programs or our traditions. But sola scriptura. Only God's Word brings God's authority. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You would seal these truths to our hearts. We know that uh, uh, this is a deep subject that we must ponder, that we must meditate on this week. Give us great encouragement to be faithful to the end, to You return for Your church, or call us home. Thank You in Christ's name. Amen.